Hello world and welcome to Aggressive Euphoria, where I employ relentless positivity tactics to fight my own luscious and cozy negativity. The main strategy is seeking out delightful things, however small, to dismantle a tower of disappointments before it turns into a fortress of depression. Every week, a new roll call of fun stuff based on the weird little songs I write. Disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional, and this podcast is not meant as treatment or cure. I also know that my brand of occasional depression might not look like your own struggles. This podcast is meant to explore the delighted mindset and reach across time and space to share human experience. Herman Melville suggested we all rub one another's shoulders as we wait for the universal thump that comes around to us all. It's like that. And now for this week's opening song. Welcome to Aggressive Euphoria. I'm Amy Zollers, a poet and artist, and I'm in one of my moods. You just heard Hello, Chuckling Vampire. Again! That was my self-harmonizing trick you just witnessed. First, I played rhythm on my acoustic guitar, a Taylor Gemini Mini, while singing melody. Then I borrowed, I think, my husband's phone to play it back while I played more rhythm on my purple harpsicle harp and sang a low harmony. And all the while displaying the Hello Chuckling Vampire doll I had just sold in my Etsy shop a year ago last May. See, Hello Chuckling Vampire is kind of like a whole universe, right? So this is part two of Hello Chuckling Vampire episodes. Uh, A lot of content. The last time, if you have listened already, we'll know we didn't even get... We didn't even scratch the surface on the inspiration for the song, Hello Chuckling Vampire, which I normally kind of build around that. Instead, we just talked vampires, and I just had a lot of fun doing that. Talked about Salem's Lot, the 1979 miniseries. Talked about John Polidori's um, book. I mean, first vampire story ever, The Vampire, with a Y. So now, onward to song inspiration. What inspired the writing of this song? Hello, Chuckling Vampire. So, okay, let's ring some bells, shall we? Hopefully, I have front-loaded this two-part episode with enough vampirize. That was a typo, I believe, of vampirism in the ebook version I read of John Polidori's 1816 short story, The Vampire, which we discussed in our part one. But let's say magnificence. Hopefully, I have front-loaded this two-part vampire episode with enough magnificence to allow for upcoming revelations, tantalizing. If not, very well. I'm not an influencer. I may do as I please. So it all began about 12 years ago, which I remember because my son was four. That's the way I used to remember things when he was little. Was Well, he was about this old, and that's when it was then, exactly. But I had, oh, I'd been overlooking symptoms in my own body of mastitis. And mastitis is an infection of the milk ducts in the breast. I had overlooked it in spite of having taught breastfeeding classes to WIC moms for three years. 
because some years had passed since I had weaned my kid. But apparently there was still some life in the old girl's yet viable milk or whatever. So yeah, I had stopped. I had left the job at WIC of teaching breastfeeding classes to new mothers when my son was almost four. So that would have been like in August. And so this was the following July. So that many months I had just like not been in the whole breastfeeding peer counseling scene. So just, and I wasn't breastfeeding. So it really was not on my mind that it would be mastitis. But I finally put it together. I had a pain that lined up with mastitis. I thought I just slept weird in some kind of weird position or something. And so I let it go for a couple of days. And by then I felt like trash. I had never had mastitis actually while I was breast while I was breastfeeding because probably because my son actually nursed a lot and that keeps the milk ducts really clear and healthy and so I wasn't really vulnerable to that it seemed but I had talked about it a lot in my classes it was you know it's not uncommon among breastfeeding mothers and so at that point once I just really kind of started feeling horrible a light bulb came on I just put two and two together oh and mastitis weirdly and I was uh telling the doctor that I did like the symptoms would be like you have a pain in your boob and normally you would treat it with hot shower or like heating pad or massage um, which I didn't do because I didn't realize what was going on yet and, or ideally, you would treat it with breastfeeding if you're if it's still a practice for you, because that helps clear it out. But otherwise, you're gonna feel like trash, sort of kind of wrung out, like you've got the flu. So, like I say, I called the doctor. I didn't go to doctors very often, being both poor and healthy. But you know, calm down. I always took my kid for his regular appointments and checkups, and if he was sick and um, things like that. I'm just talking about my own habits here. So the doctor put me off for a day or two, even though I had already waited a day or two. And I kind of told him that, but he was like, well, just see how it goes and then call back in a couple of days. And I was far too meek to protest in those days, even though I already felt like hot garbage. Well, a couple of days later, I felt even worse. So I saw the doctor and kissed his ring and he put me on antibiotics. So about four days later, I felt wonderful, except that my throat was blazing. I thought I had my energy back and I was perky and I didn't feel achy. It's just my throat was on fire. And I could meekly open my mouth before the bathroom mirror and see my tonsils. They were visible for the first time in my life. That had never happened to me in all of my born days. Well, still, again, I waited a day or two to call the doctor, probably because I didn't like him that much, and <laughs> and um and I was uh, kind of protesting to myself because I felt so strong and energetic otherwise, which is my throat really hurt. But then I saw, I read on the internet that this particular antibiotic could cause tonsillitis. But you know, back then, the women's magazines, the same ones that would tell women over 30 not to wear their hair long because from the back, you'll look young and hot, but then... Oh no, when they see you're old and shriveled and doweled and the planet is essentially done with you, they'll be upset. People looking at you, they'll be upset. Mustn't let that happen. So seriously, that's just garbage. Wear your hair as you see fit, as you like. It makes you feel like you. I do not read those rags anymore, obviously. Let's just say, without throwing anyone under the bus, that they were gift subscriptions. 
And but anyway, these magazines were telling you back then. This one was anyway that now don't make a list of things you read on the internet and take them into your doctor. It's like let's all you know kiss the doctor's ring. The doctor doesn't have time for your nonsense. You know, you really don't know what you're talking about. The doctor is a professional. So it's kind of the message. And I think that's changed somewhat because people are, you know, there are more communities on the internet now than maybe possibly 10 years ago. There's like, it's just a lot of information. I just think that, I hope that attitude is changing. Maybe I, maybe it's just my attitude that's changing, but I think probably people have experiences that make them a little more savvy in some ways. Let us hope. Well, I drag myself back to the doctor told him what I'd read about <laughs> that particular antibiotic and let's see what did he say he said no those antibiotics don't cause that <laughs> and then he looked at my blazing throat and said but if this keeps up you're gonna have to have your tonsils out okay look and at my advanced age I was gonna have to have my tonsils out long hair and all and I was like look chum to paraphrase I am 35 years old I said that was 12 years ago And I've never had tonsillitis in my life. It is just not my area of vulnerability. This is the work of the antibiotics. Well, he grudgingly changed my dope, my antibiotics. My mom called everything dope, like, you know, headache medicine. (laughs) She was funny. Uh, Changed it. Everything cleared up just beautifully. Except then came the symptoms of a urinary tract infection which I'd never had before in my life. And do you know what I did then in that very moment? In that precise moment, I transformed into a hippie. That was the moment. Because you see, antibiotics are definitely necessary in some cases, right? They, they are. One time my son had pneumonia and we didn't know it. It wasn't obvious It was kind of one of those situations where I, of course, have a vomit phobia and he had been sick a couple of weeks before. This is when he was six years old. So this was after my hippie transformation. He was almost six. It was almost his birthday. And he had some symptoms. Every time he really had anything, he might throw up, which was a bummer, but I handled it. Uh, Anyway, he um, was a little bit sick again. And I and I really I just had a moment of weakness because he'd been sick so recently and I'd had to deal with my phobia. So I said to myself, gosh, I really honestly, I said non hippily, I said, I want it to be something that he needs antibiotics for so he'll get better and not throw up because he sometimes would like just throw up you know, enough, enough for me, enough for probably anybody, but a dear, 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 sweet lad. Um, so I took him to the doctor cause I was just like, let's just see if that could happen. And the doctor, she was a very capable, his pediatrician, I had a lot of uh, faith in actually. She listened to his chest and was like, it's pneumonia. And he had complained of nothing about breathing or feeling, you know, weird in his chest. She, he, she walked out to go get him some, you know, shots of antibiotic. And then he said, while we were in the doctor's office, um, after throwing up in the trash can, yes, he said, it hurts when I breathe or something like that. And so I was just so, I thought I was going to get laughed out of there and be told he just had a virus, go home, take care of your son. But thankfully... Thankfully, I was a nervous wreck and took him in and he still threw up. He had to get shots two days in a row, that poor little guy, because he couldn't keep antibiotics down. That's just how one of his areas of vulnerability at that time was the tum-tum. So um, 
so but the doctor had told me that he would um you know, he it was a good thing we got him in there early because she'd seen a little boy the week before about the same age. And he had recovered, but he'd had to spend the weekend in the hospital. And my son was very nervous. He would not have liked that at all. Pardon me if I drink tea because this is part two and it's even longer than part one. And I'm doing the whole thing today, just releasing them a day apart. So I might just drink my yogi tea like the dirty hippie that I am. So anyway, but what antibiotics also do is they kill everything, the good and the bad. The bad bacteria, the pneumonia that can really do you some harm, the mastitis, the, all of that, the stuff that was making me feel terrible, and I don't know, maybe I would have recovered on my own. I had a fairly strong constitution. So I began to research at that point natural antibiotics. I'd kind of been through enough with the whole you know blitzing of my system. And I hit on oregano oil. I got my hands on some and administered it to myself according to recommended dosage. And I got better quickly. Now, disclaimer, I'm not a medical professional and some of them do great work. Also, I'm not a professional herbalist. I'm not giving medical advice. I'm not prescribing anything. I would say for a high-level herbalism podcast, I recommend Medicine Stories with Amber Magnolia Hill, The Plant Path with Sage and Whitney Popham, Herb Rally with Mason Hutchison, and Herbal Radio from Mountain Rose Herbs, to name a few. So meanwhile, while all of this was going on with my health situation, I had this fairyland library job, a public library. I shelved and pulled hold items. People put things on hold and I would go find them according to a list. I had a list of holds that I would have to print out every day. And if my little boy, when he was like three and four and stuff and didn't, didn't want me to leave and go to work, I'd say, I have to go grant wishes because I would, you know, pull the holds off of uh, the request list and um, also do a little shelving. This was Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. That's the fairyland part. It was two hours a day, a glorious two hour shift during the first hour of which we were still closed to the public. Introvert heaven. Well, one of my shelving areas in the library was audiobook section, and this was located next to the young adult section. And it was what, 2010? So I was confronted daily with a poster on an end cap of the shelves. Uh, for the second Twilight movie, New Moon, that poster truly rankled me. Skinny teens playing at broody and sultry. Where was the life experience? Where the birthing hips? The fresh-faced brooding youths have all the answers, don't they? Now you're slowly learning the truth about me, right? So anyway, the magazines had been telling me, all of that. The youths, they have all the answers. You know, since I, since the days when I was drooling over Corey's Haim and Feldman, or, or even going back to the cast of The Outsiders, circa 1983, in the pages of magazines at the grocery store. So I found that poster annoying. That's why. I was feeling a little on edge about it. I, I would not have given t- Twilight the time of day in any reality or format. But then came that French farce of health care following my freak mastitis. And then came the previews on television for the next Twilight film, Eclipse. 
Now, like I say, I knew nothing about the Twilight Saga, only its dark-eyed, sexy teens, and perhaps a vampire thrown in there somewhere. Granted, I had loved vampire stories and movies all of my life. Check my Etsy store, Hitness and Outrage, immediately for my embroidery portrait of Mina in Dracula 1979, saying, Come at me, Papa, because when I was ten and obsessed with that scene on video cassette, I didn't realize she was speaking Dutch. I thought she was saying, Come at me, Papa, and this was before everybody would be like, Come at me, bro. And this was like 1984, something like that. So, ha ha ha, I find that funny. Also, let's hear mention Robert Sean Leonard in My Best Friend is a Vampire and let it soak in. Okay, onward. Okay, so, but in the Twilight Eclipse preview, here came an army of vampires walking out of an ocean, as far as I could tell. What? And running at a pack of gigantic werewolves. Interjection. I haven't mentioned my history of werewolf dreams, have I? So here's a poem break. Dreamsville, number seven. In the werewolf dream, we sat around the apartment, knowing, reading fairy tales to postpone the dread. We sat around the apartment, knowing, and dreading the transformation. I'm scared, I admitted, whispery, the pale-colored, swirling borders of the fairy tale book ever-present at the corner of my eyes. I'm scared, too, he said. In the werewolf dream, I bundled up the baby against the winter night and left ahead of the transformation. We agreed it was best. In the werewolf dream, my baby's socks fell off in the snow. In the snow of the blackest blacktop parking lot, nearly empty, vast, ponderous, very tall streetlights, I couldn't find my car. I could only think, his cold little feet, the authorities will take him away from me. In the werewolf dream, blessedly, we somehow arrived at Macy's department store, and I was instantly calmed by the soft music and perfumed influence of retail. In the werewolf dream, I clutched my baby slinged baby in the Macy's elevator, empty but for us and a teenaged elevator operator. I feared he, too, might have the wolf in him, but he escorted us gently, efficiently, to the safety of the roof. A poem about one of my werewolf dreams, from the Dream Trash Collection, yet unpublished. And regarding another werewolf dream, I had a horrifying one, one night. I don't remember it, but the point is I do remember, and I also, I blame an American werewolf in London for this trend in my dreams, because it was terrifying, wonderfully terrifying, but terrifying. Anyway, so the morning after my horrifying, unremembered werewolf dream, I performed my first library duty of the day, which was replenishing the new book section with recent returns. And no kidding, there was a book about how to survive a werewolf attack. Tongue-in-cheek? I don't know. Maybe it was a guide for writers? I don't recall. But I took it home for the express purpose of arming myself for my dreams. And once I read the tips regarding iron chains and shackles and keeping your freezer full of meat to feed the beast, I stopped having werewolf dreams. Wild. It was like I was prepared, and so now it was fine. So the point is, a burning question had formed. What did those puny, anemic, twilight eclipse vampires think they were going to do exactly in the face of those monstrous werewolves? Werewolves, to me, were just nigh on to all-powerful and 
horrifying. So I asked my library friend, Wendy. We had both worked full-time at the library, and then when my son was born, I left for about three years and then went back two hours a day. But I would see her in the mornings, and she was around my age, and I knew she had read the Twilight books. I don't know why I knew that, but she did have a 13-year-old daughter, and that is an excellent excuse to read the Twilight books. And Wendy explained to me that the vampires were really fast and really strong and made of marble or something like that. And that's how they were going to be able to take on these werewolves. Well, I was still recovering from my health ordeal, infection pileup, and depleted good bacterias. And my husband was traveling out of town that weekend for his master's degree program, which he would do kind of, you know, out of on an out-of-town program one weekend a month. So I decided to read Twilight. In secret, if you will. That is how I got there. It seemed necessary to explain my extenuating circumstances, my circuitous path, or whatever, to what brought me to this low point where I would read Twilight, or whatever. Well, at that point, it kind of was, because I was never going to, because of that poster. Well, now, here's what I enjoyed. I'm going to just tell you what I enjoyed about it. I enjoyed, like, the unraveling of the folklore, the kind of the unwinding of it, and and just uh, the finding out and the discovery of it. And also, I'm kind of a sucker for romance and story most of the time. I liked the idea of a mysterious teen from the 1910s with a tendency to weird old language. I mean, appropriately, he had, like, shed the very outdated slang of his living youth. But I think it would have been funny if he'd accidentally or intentionally just, like, slid into 1920s or 1970s slang once in a while for flair. Oh, wait, the vampire code leave no vampire trace. He could not have done that. He was the, he was the one that, you know, was very vigilant about making sure nobody found out they were vampires. And honestly, you know, I kept connecting him with Jeffrey Lewis as Alfred Fettig in the X-Files, as mentioned in part one, because when uh, Scully was kind of digging through his stuff and suspecting him of living forever, and she found photographs, this was 1998, eight or nine, I think that's season six. It would have been like 1999 or 2000. I think it was 99. And um, she's going through his photos and sees photographs that he's taken in the 1920s. At least that's what the hat looked like. I can't remember if it was the 20s or 30s. But, um, you know, I think I just kept thinking of that when I was reading about Edward and his angry after hours killing the bad guys phase around, you know, the roaring 20s or so. Now, I'm not going to belabor the parts that I didn't enjoy, because you can get that anywhere. But one line that always bugged me in Twilight was Bella regarding the mushroom ravioli, okay? I know, she was preoccupied. She's trying to figure out if Edward is what she thinks he is and trying to let him know that she's got a suspicion or two. But she's eating this mushroom ravioli, and her comment in her mind is, the mushrooms were good. Now, anyone who can discuss food with such absence of passion is a tragic conundrum to me. And yet, that perfectly sets her up for her destiny, which, spoiler alert, jump ahead ten seconds, involves leaving delicious human foods behind, but not until book four. So, I just thought, I just, I thought that was kind of a badge of the book in some ways. The mushrooms were good. So all I'm saying is I, I enjoyed the folklore stuff. I enjoyed the romance stuff. I really enjoyed the weather, you know, like the, the, it was summertime and I really 
enjoy gray weather as a rule and rainy weather as a rule. And um, I really enjoyed that about the book. And it was really just, it was a comfort during that time. I mean, of course, there's a lot of snarky, snark, snark surrounding the Twilight Saga. To me, it's always seemed that like, you know, the Harry Potter fans cannot allow themselves to be affiliated with Twilight because they exist on a much higher intellectual plane, you know, so they just can't be affiliated. But I hope they realize how liberally their Lord and Savior, J.K. Rowling, has lifted from folklore a lot. Okay, that was a hot take because of course they know. They know everything. Well, anyway, it's just that I prefer vampire stories as a rule over wizard stories. It's just how I've always been. Twilight is not without its shortcomings, of course. What is? There's this great documentary we watched one time. I am off script now, so I need to watch it because this is a longer episode. But <laughs> we watched it. I, um, a documentary about people who read like the Harlequin romances. And I loved it. It was great. I loved these people. I loved their lives. They just had regular human lives, regular people. And something that brought them a little comfort on their lunch break or on their days off was to read these Harlequin romances. And I've worked at three different public libraries in three different towns. And, um, you know, people will come and check out gigantic stacks of them. It's just this thing they enjoy. So I think in a way, Twilight is you know, sort of like that in the sense that it's light, fair. It's a young adult book, but I still enjoyed it. I'm not going to apologize. <laughs> so, you know, I also consider myself a champion of creatives, like writers and poets and artists and music makers, no matter your style or level of ability. I don't like all music. I don't like all books. But I think that people, if they feel like it's inside of them, should bring it out and... It took me a long time to get to where I would do it publicly with books of poetry that I write or songs that I perform. But um, I, I'm for that. I don't think that, you know, you should let the gatekeepers who say you have to be this, you know, sparkling and use this kind of uh, musical instrument or recording studio equipment or whatever, you know, who are they? You don't have to let them deter you from creating. Just like the women's magazines should not deter you from having long hair or short hair or no hair or whatever you think is your deal, you know? So my brief extenuating health circumstances that July came along while I was already devastated about secondary infertility and my mother's sliding dementia. The Twilight Saga brought me some fun relief from that. Hey, thanks, Stephanie Meyer. Just thought I'd say thanks. And finally... I reveal now that in the course of the book, Edward, the vampire, chuckled so many times. He chuckled. Edward chuckled. Blah, 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 he said with a chuckle. There was a lot of Edward chuckling so many times that at one point, I'm pretty sure I said out loud, if that vampire chuckles one more time, so help me, I'm going to write a song called Chuckling Vampire. Or maybe I said start a rock band called The Chuckling Vampires. I don't know. In short... I've tried to start a rock band before, but I suppose I'm just traveling in the wrong circles, as Jessica Fletcher has said on Murder, She Wrote. So I wrote a song called Hello, Chuckling Vampire, and that is the way it happened, friends. Fall away if you must, my public of 11 faithful listeners. I adore you all. I polydory you all. Now let us end on a final handful of crucial vampire tellings. Just some other significant vampire story things. Number one, Dracula by Bram Stoker. 
I have made three attempts since high school to read this book. Every time when I encounter the brides, I am so overcome with dread and doom. I have to stop and pray. So I think that's some good writing right there. It was so scary to me. And I haven't attempted it in years. It's probably been 15 years, let's say, since I tried it last. And so, I mean, could this be the time for a fourth try? I think I would, I think I would like that. I think I would like to see what is it about the writing that is, is evoking things that are horrifying to me here. I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Summer Book Club, I'll get back to you. Maybe we should do a Dracula Summer Book Club. That'd be great. But I do like what I have read, of course, up to that point. And I like other short stories by Bram Stoker. can't remember if he wrote The Rats or The Judge or which ones, but I've read a lot of oldie Victorian ghost stories and others by him that I've enjoyed. Okay, number two, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I was just watching while I was drinking my coffee and having my lunch in between recording parts one and part two of Hello, Chuckling Vampire for Aggressive Euphoria. I was watching the episode about the mask that makes zombies come out of the ground or, you know, dead people come out of the ground and be zombies and attack you. And um, it's great. Buffy had just gotten back from having run away after sending Angel to hell, and she was such a wreck. Dear girl. So Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie. Okay, oh my stars, I forgot Luke Perry was in it. Rest him. But I enjoyed the movie. We saw it in high school. We were all ecstatic that Pee Wee Herman was in it, and he was so funny. He's this vampire with kind of longish hair and a goatee, and he gets like a stake through the heart, and he goes, ow, ow, ow. He's like mocking. It was blessing, blessing. Alicia Silverstone, I think it was. She actually showed up in a vampire episode of Psych, the television show. So they are, and, and so did Corey Feldman from The Lost Boys. Shows up as a bartender in a vampire-themed bar. So Psych is such an affirming, a life-affirming show. It's a blessing. So if you're having a hard day, I recommend watching some Psych. That's just, that's just me. But as for the television show of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that's what I was watching beforehand. I love all of the characters. I think both of the movie, both the movie and the TV versions had pretty good storytelling. I think that the television show has kind of masterful storytelling. And I love all of the characters, uh, even the evil ones in the television version, especially Drusilla. She is so deliciously insane. She's so good at insane. And yet her story is just utterly tragic. She's telling the priest, I want to be pure. I want, she's, you know, she feels, her mother tells her she's evil because she has visions. Like, like freaking Alice in Twilight, right? In an insane asylum. Well, poor Drusilla, you know, she wants to be pure. And this angel is hiding in there as the priest. And he's messing with her and driving her insane. And he just turns her into a vampire. Oh my gosh. You know, it's before he had his soul. Okay, number three in our list of different tellings of uh, vampire stories. Seven short films about Twilight. Does anyone, was this on anybody's radar? I believe I read about it in Nylon Magazine. So so these came out on Facebook, I think in 2015, when more bizarre life circumstances just absolutely had ripened me for appreciating seven short films about twilight those are texas years and difficult my mother was dying i've mentioned it before and so when i was getting that big texas bathtub and 
watch those things when we had an, we had a working iPad back then. So it was really nice. Um, I read about it, like I said, in Nylon, a fashion magazine that I respected for its intelligent book reviews. It had really good book reviews. It put me on to a, an author I love, Helen Phillips, who wrote this great collection of like two page stories called um, And Yet They Were Happy. I, I find her so inspiring. She was the one who told Nylon Magazine when she was talking about that book. She said, well, you know, I'd been writing a lot of poetry. And at that time, I was writing a poem every day and reading a poem every day. And when I read that, she had done that. And then I read and then they were happy on the switchboard when I worked on the switchboard. I began doing that. And I think for about three straight years, and then I took it up again last year, I think I did a read a poem, write a poem every day. That's why I have so much poetry, (laughs) partly. It's not all good if you write a poem every day, unless... You know, I mean, maybe it's just me, but they weren't all keepers, but they were a practice. It was a practice and a discipline. And I'm grateful to Helen Phillips for putting me onto that. And I heard about Helen Phillips from uh, Nylon Magazine. They would also do features in Nylon Magazine where they would pair old movies, like the mood of this old movie. And it'd be some crazy movie like Repulsion or um, that's the only one I can remember. Um, oh, what's the one with the Julie Christie that I loved? darling like darling and and repulsion these one word you know black and white early 60s movies and pair them with a perfume and for a while peaches geldoff had a column and i adored her i was sorry about what happened to her but um but she had this great column in nylon anyway that's where i heard about the uh you know, the if you need more twilight here's some seven short films cuz there was like a contest where people were challenged to make um films about twilight and this right here elevates twilight a little i think is that so many people came out brought in their short films and the ones that won were very high quality and it could have just been that people were like well you know filmmaking but it really seems like there was some some good some good storytelling and some good effort really put into that the two films that struck me out of the seven were one called We've Met Before, which is a diner scene. They're all just really short, you know, five minutes, ten minutes. Uh, it's a diner scene where, like, Alice and Jasper finally meet. Alice, having been psychically aware of him for some time now, the characters, I found them likable and lovely, not just the main two, but also the waitress was really cool. And the music was wonderful. The diner setting, the rainstorm. It seemed like a fun, undead life, except for not being able to eat diner food or drink the coffee. Alice, by the way, pours sugar into her prop cup of coffee and Jasper remarks, having just met her, he's like, that's a lot of sugar and handsome eyebrows jutting upward. It makes me feel human, Alice answers dreamily. She's kind of channeling Audrey from Twin Peaks a little. I liked it. Mask, M-A-S-Q-U-E, kind of like the Edgar Allan Poe Mask of the Red Death thing. Mask was also an important one to me, especially when Esme says of the abusive father that they encounter at a party and this gorgeous deep voice that the actress has, he doesn't deserve a child. That was very, that was very poignant, I thought. It was great. So I wanted there to be one about Edward and his 1920 streetwear skulking out in the alleys and quelling the population of murderers and rapists, but alas, still kind of some good vampire storytelling there. And number four, finally, in uh, good, good, excellent, elevated vampire storytelling. (sighs) Deep breath and relish it. 
the 20-minute West Berlin vampire tale of 1984, Bad Blood for the Vampire. Watch immediately. There's artwork related to it in my Etsy shop, some block prints. Oliver Maria shoots, devastating. Maria Zastrow, devastating. Blixabargeld, quote, as the evil priest, shattering. The real Hino. What is happening here? That is bad blood for the vampire. It's part of your cast. Look, okay, in spite of some unsettling points that were made in the name of satire, the genius of this little film is unfair. It is just so unfairly good. There's arty post-punk Berlin, and there's a vampire, and he, he's made ill by the bad blood of a vice-riddled populace. Everyone's just so bad. Sinful. That their blood makes him sick. Bad blood makes me sick. But I got used to trash. I'm sorry. I will quote. Oh, I love it so much. And so he needs a virgin in order to be able to feed without vomiting in the alley. <laughs> oh, beautifully. I, mean, I hate vomit, but I still love how Oliver Maria Schutz did that in the <sighs> sigh. Anyway, he needed a virgin and he could not find one. It was 1980s Berlin. That was the, that was the funny statement they were making. His wife, Vampira, had been burned as a witch long ago. Vampira! Vampira! By the way, I'm enamored of the trope wherein, like, the artist cries the name of his lost lover. I'm just, I'm just drunk on that. It's John Lennon, for example. I could never have kept it together as Yoko did in those circumstances. I am such a fool. And if it were Oliver Maria Schutz calling my name in despair, ditto. Not even close. Resist? What does that word mean? Breathtaking. So that is that world. Hello, Chuckling Vampire. If that vampire chuckles one more time, I'm going to write a song called Chuckling Vampire. So that does it. I will be back next Thursday. Thank you for listening to part two of Hello Chuckling Vampire on Aggressive Euphoria. Until next Thursday, you can email me, email me anything you'd like me to read on the podcast or that I, you would like me to consider for future episodes. I would have to write a song about it, so that could be a good challenge. I was doing the 100-day project um, for... What was I doing it for? Because I, all I can remember is that I was doing it for songwriting. and Oh, yeah, I was doing poet. I was doing art things, like visual art. I did some portraits of poets. Then I went on to the sweater poems. If you want to see my uh, Amazon author page, link in bio on Instagram, um, there is an ebook called um, Sweater Poems that was part of the 100-day project. I did it as an ebook because I can keep it in color that way without it being prohibitively expensive to print. And... Um, and then whatever I did after that, I guess whatever I felt like, and I kind of fell away. But really, I, I was doing 100 days of songwriting as well. Got some good stuff done for about 20 or 30 days, and then was focusing on National Poetry Month, and no regrets. But um, but that could be a good way to kind of get the songwriting going as well, is if you have an idea for something you'd like to hear about that, that kind of helps you to thwart, you know, depressive moments in your life, I maybe I'll write a song about it and uh, make an episode about it and that could be cool um that email address is aggressive euphoria at gmail.com that's just aggressive euphoria all one word all run together just like it's spelled in the podcast logo and you can uh find me on instagram at aggressive dot euphoria 
and that'll give you visuals to go along with the podcast. And uh, so I hope you enjoyed it. Find that delighted mindset. Hang up some garlic. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, your blood is thinking delicious. It's my ruin the play.